Old Testament reading from Genesis 28. Uh, this is right after, uh, this is right after, uh, Jacob has that, uh, vision of, uh, the ladder descending to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And God makes him this covenant promise that just like your father Abraham, just like your father Isaac, I am going to give you the land. I'm going to give you offspring and I'm going to give you eternal blessing. This is Jacob's response. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading is from 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 21st chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So I have said uh, twice since uh, last year, I've said uh, two times that this is the hardest sermon uh, this is like the most difficult sermon I'm going to have to preach to you. And I'm going to say it again. It's uh, today. And eventually I will preach the hardest sermon I have to preach. It's probably this one, I'm thinking. And then I'll stop saying that. Uh, but really, this is a difficult thing to preach about. I will t- I'll tell you that. Uh, so this is my 10th year of preaching sermons as a pastor. I have never one time preached a sermon about money about money or giving. I've mentioned money or giving in sermons, but I've never preached a sermon about it. And the reason why is because there's two reasons. One is a good theological reason. I've just always believed that God will provide, right? That God will take care of the needs that he wants to get, that he wants to take care of. The other reason though is that I, as a good postmodern American, like you, hold, uh, uh, my money as super private, like it's not anybody's business. 
And I've always had the sense that if I preach about money or about giving, uh, I'll be getting a little bit too close. And uh, people will be uncomfortable and awkward and maybe even a little bit offended. Uh, but I'm going to preach about it this morning because I haven't. And because it's one of those things like, uh, you know, preaching about sex. I, somebody, I preached uh, sermons about sex last year, and I had somebody who said, I'm not coming back to this church anymore. And uh, I felt bad about that. But there's these things that are so private and close to us that we just think nobody can tell us about. And what we do is we say, you know, God himself can't tell us about these things. And uh, I don't want to fall into that trap. And so what I want to do is to, to talk about money or giving, but I want to be really careful about it. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that this isn't, I'm not talking about, I mean, there's other things I could talk about, right? I could talk about child rearing and everybody would be fine with me talking about that because it, it's, it's kind of done in public in front of everybody anyway. But if I talk about uh, stuff like sex or finances, that's stuff that in our culture, that's like so sacred, small s, sacred, that, you know, mind your own business. That's kind of how we think about those sorts of things. So anyway, uh, here goes. Uh, please uh, be gracious to me and understand that... Um, uh, like when you uh, confront a snake in your yard, he's more nervous than you are, if that makes you feel better. I'm more scared of you than you are of me right now. Anyway, uh, so let's do this. Let's talk about the law first. That'll be the short part. And then we'll talk about the gospel. We'll come at it from, uh, like good Lutherans, we'll come at it from law and then gospel. Uh, so the law, uh, just some background uh, uh background of why this is going to be difficult for me to say this is that we don't like the law. You and I don't like the law for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that, you, you know, what the law tells us what to do, it doesn't really help us do it. It doesn't give us the motivation to do things. Uh, this, by the way, isn't bad. If you have, uh, you know, if one of your kids comes up to you and says, hey, I got this toy for my birthday. Uh, can you put it together? Here are the directions. Uh, you put the toy together because you love your kid and because they want to play with the toy, right? I mean, that doesn't make the directions irrelevant. The directions are there. The directions might not really motivate you too much to put the toy together. It's going to take your love for your kid to do it. But the directions are still helpful so that you know what to do. So let's start off with the directions, right? I mean, here's the other thing, though, is, and this is the larger question about why it's difficult to hear what the Bible has to say, what the law has to say about things like sex and money. The question is, does God have a right to tell us what to do? Does God have a right to tell us what to do? I was reading in the Atlantic this week an interview with a pastor who uh, was talking about how I came from like this super strict, oppressive religious background, and now I've moved to this more open-minded background. And this pastor was talking about how they had... Uh, started discovering issues of social justice. And I thought, yeah, that's good. You know, that's, we're called to help the poor. We're called to help the oppressed. We're called to help minorities. And also issues about this pastor was like, I discovered that uh, taking care of the environment is important. And I thought, yeah, that's super important, right? I mean, uh, if the churches that you came from didn't teach this, then they weren't teaching all of God's word. We're supposed to care for the world that God put us in. Uh, good for you. And then this person made this comment, and I'm going to read it to you. This is directly from the article. This is a quote. 
And also, in addition to like uh, issues of racism, social justice, the environment, this person says this. And then I thought, what about bodily autonomy? Like, it's your body. You can do whatever you want with it. It's your life. Nobody else can be in control. What about that? Isn't that justice? How would God ever infringe upon that? How would God, this is, I mean, I'm not making this up, this junk up. This is actually a pastor said, how would God ever infringe upon your bodily autonomy? That's a justice issue. And I thought, I wish that I could be a pastor like that. It would be extremely easy to be a pastor and never have to read your Bible. And that's clearly what this person has done. I mean, from page one to the very last page of the book, God is all the time telling us what to do. But it's so offensive to us that what we try to do is we try to live our lives with this sort of postmodern value that it's my world, it's my life, nobody else can tell me what to do with it. And we try to paint, because we're all sort of like, we all want to be Christian, right? I mean, a lot of you want to be Christian. We paint this thin veneer of Christianity over it, like, oh, my culture values uh, free, sovereign, individual autonomy. Well, then God must too. God, one of the things that God must value most is me getting to do exactly what I want. And that's actually the opposite. God has no interest in your bodily autonomy or my bodily autonomy. God has an interest in being Lord of the entire universe and in saying in very specific terms, here's what I want you to do. Now, again, this is not pleasant. And it also doesn't help you out. For God to say things like in, in 2 Chronicles 31, this bit, Hezekiah orders the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion to the priests and the Levites so that they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produce. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. That's framed here in terms of ordering. God, through Hezekiah, orders the people to bring in the tithe. Okay, so... I would love to have bodily autonomy. I would love to say, look, God wants me to enjoy my money. That's super important to God, that I use my money to make myself happy. Or every once in a while, you know, to do some nice things if that makes me feel good. But that's my money, and God wants to protect. No, that's actually not the case. God wants to own your money. God wants to own your body. God wants to own your thoughts. I mean, the New Testament talks about your even your own thoughts in terms of being held captive to the Lordship of Christ. There's no such thing as free sovereign autonomy, and your culture is going to tell you that this is a value that you should hold on to. And you're just going to, as a Christian, you're just going to have to say, I know this is totally weird, but I don't. I don't belong to myself. I've been bought with a price. I don't have a right to decide what happens with my body or with my money or even with my thoughts. It all belongs to God. Okay, that's the law. The law says, that's kind of broad laws, broad principles about, you know, the, the question, does God have a right to tell us whether you advice? Let's narrow it back down here just for a minute and say this, that what God wants us to do is to tithe. That's, that, that, that's the command. To tithe is just a fancy word for 10%. All right, 10% of your income, give it to me, God says. All right. So I want you to I want you to think about this and ask yourself the question: Does ten percent of my income does it belong to the Lord? Am I giving it to God? As we go along here, that's law. That doesn't help you out too much. Let's let's go to gospel, which will actually give us the motivation for doing this very difficult thing, which is taking a big chunk of our change and giving it over to God. And you, of course, realize that at this point we could move on from money to all different other sorts of like applications. But this morning, what we're going to do is talk about. Uh, Money. So first of all, uh, the Genesis reading, uh, Jacob and the, the, um, Jacob's ladder. 
Uh, God makes this promise to him, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my guy. And then Jacob responds by saying at the end, uh, I'm going to give a tenth to you. Of all that you will give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is Of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the first of four principles I want to point out from the Genesis reading and from the Second Corinthians reading about giving, giving to the Lord. The first of four principles. And the first one is this. Giving is a recognition that everything we have comes from God and belongs to Him. Everything that we have belongs to the Lord. This is what Jacob says, right? Jacob says, of all that you have given me, I will give a full time. Jacob's not doing God a favor here. You know, Jacob's not like, all right, I got all this money, God, but you're a pretty nice guy and you do a pretty solid job of what you think, that, you know, of what your job is. I'm going to give you a little bit of money. So what, in other words, what Jacob is saying is, is this isn't even my money. You gave it all to me in the first place. I'm going to give you 10% of it to signify that it belongs to you. So here's what giving is not. Tithing is not a fee for services rendered. Right? This isn't like a social club and you've got dues and so you pay your dues and some of you don't pay your dues because you know other people are going to pay your dues and the doors will still be open. But it's not, it's also you're not throwing God a tip, right? Hey, that's a pretty good service. I got I got I got a couple of free refills and I didn't even ask for them. Here, I'll throw God a tip in the offering plate. No, what we're doing is we're not giving to God from what is ours. We're giving back to God what's already His. It's a recognition that God owns everything we have, and so we give Him 10% as a sign that all I own is yours, God. This 10% is just a little bit of me letting go of this to signify that actually the whole thing is yours. That's the first thing. It's, it's not, you know, it's, in other words, it's, it's grateful, right? It's a grateful recognition. It's not, a, like I said, it's not a fee or it's not like a, a, you know, you're not giving God his paycheck. It's a grateful recognition that our money belongs to him. Have you ever been frustrated when, um, I always feel bad for dragging my kids in on this. I, if my mom or dad were here, they would say that I did the exact same thing. Um, have you ever been frustrated? Have you ever said to one of your kids, hey, can I have one of those potato chips? And they're like, no, they're my potato chips. And th- th- whenever that happens, I'm always a little bit like, that's snotty of you. And it's not, I wouldn't do, like, if, if I, you know, if Kate had potato chips and I said, Kate, could I have a potato chip? And she would, she would say, I don't think so. I'd be like, okay, well, all right. It's a little bit rude of Kate, but I get it. Now, if Harry does it to me, though, what I think is like, come on, man. And the reason I think, come on, man, is because I actually paid for the chips. Right? I mean, I bought him the chips. I bought him the pants that he's wearing. Uh, I, I pay for the water that he drinks from the tap. And so if he says to me, I don't want to give you one of my chips, there's part of that that's, that's saying, but, but wait a minute, that's actually my chip. Right? Now that's kind of the bad, that's kind of maybe, that's maybe a little bit lost, the flip side of saying, Harry, you should give me that chip because I bought that chip. All I'm asking for is one chip. But here's, here's the, the, here's the other side. When we realize as children, that everything that we have has been given to us by our parents. And when you see, when you see your kids make this move, it's exciting because they're extending themselves beyond their own little private circle of chip hunger to realize that no, actually, I've been gifted these potato chips and the video game system and the trip to the zoo and the water from the tap. All of this has been given to me by the parents. And when they give you the chip, it's done out of love and gratefulness. And this is what Jacob is saying, is that I'm going to give you 
God my potato chip. And I'm, I'm going to do it not because I think that you need this potato chip. He doesn't. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need our money. But we do it as a sign that I love you so much for giving me all my money, all my worldly goods. I can give you 10%. A heart that doesn't tithe is a heart that refuses to recognize God as a provider. Now, y'all went through confirmation, so you know that God protects and provides for us. But as far as really believing that what we have comes from God and isn't created by our hard work or by our good luck or whatever, a heart that gives to God recognizes this. It recognizes that God has given me all this stuff and he can give me as much as he wants. He can take his, take away from me as much as he wants, but it all belongs to him in the first place. Okay, that's the first thing. Giving is a recognition that everything we own is given to us by God. Here's the second thing. Giving is a recognition that actually we ourselves belong to God. We ourselves, not just everything that we own, but we ourselves belong to God. Look at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians. And now we're going to spend the rest of the time in the 2 Corinthians text. Actually, look at verse 3. Oh, you know what? Let me set up the 2 Corinthians text for us. Sorry. Paul writes 2 Corinthians. He's got several different things in mind, but the big thing that he has in mind in chapters 8 or 9 is to ask the church in Corinth to contribute to a fund of money that Paul is traveling around Asia and southern Europe collecting this fund of money to give to the church at Jerusalem who has been racked, and I don't remember the year, but there's a specific year when this happened, racked by this horrible drought and famine. And so Paul's going around asking the churches for these money. And this is one part where he's asking the people at Corinth, I want you to donate this money. It says in verse 3, the people north of you, the people in Macedonia, Corinth is down south in Achaia. The people in Macedonia gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The people in Macedonia like begged us, can we please give money to you to give relief to the saints? And this, verse 5, not as we expected, but they gave them. listen to this, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They were giving money, but it was not like, all right, we have to do this. And it wasn't like, well, Paul is kind of important. I kind of like him. Maybe we should like help him out and give him some money. It was the act of them being given to God, them giving themselves over to God. To go back to the original point, we don't belong to ourselves, right? And this bugs us. I just talked about it from the terms of law. Let me talk about it in terms of gospel now. It bugs us that we don't belong to ourselves. It bugs us that God says, I have a right to control your body and your thought and thoughts and your words, to demand that you give me control of those things. Why does it bug us? I'll tell you why it bugs me. It bugs me uh, because, well, I mean, again, to go back to the law thing, because I don't like people telling me what to do, whether it's God or whether it's my kid or any of you. I don't like people telling me what to do. But it actually bugs me. At the end of the day, it bugs me because I don't believe the gospel. It bugs me because I'm convinced that by belonging to and submitting to the Lordship of Christ, I am worse off. It bugs me because I believe that on my own, I'm better off than with the power of the gospel. It bugs me because I don't want Jesus to be in charge. I'm convinced that the gospel will not satisfy me, that only I can satisfy myself. Or whatever it is, that money can satisfy me, that sex can satisfy me, that food can satisfy me, that whatever it is that you think can satisfy you. I'm convinced that those things will make me happy and not Jesus 
in the gospel. But if I truly believe the gospel, if I truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and is the Lord of my life for my benefit, for my eternal happiness, that will move me from being a hoarder trying to grasp onto whatever sex I can get or whatever food I can get or whatever money I can get. It'll move me from being a hoarder to a giver. Things can freely pass through my hands. My house doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. My friends don't belong to me. They belong to God. My money does not belong to me. It belongs to God. It makes it, the gospel makes it easy to release these things. Knowing and believing that Jesus owns you makes it easy to give up the things of the world which long to clamp us down in their prison. This is the second thing. First, giving is a recognition that, that everything we own is given to us by God. Second, giving is a recognition that we belong to God. Third, giving in the Bible, done, done gospel-centeredly, giving is an act of love. Look at verse 3. Oh, we just read this a second ago. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. They didn't give because they felt guilty about it. You guys know this about the law right now. I, you know this, right? I could tell you, you guys, the Bible says you have to tithe. And I could get you all the tithe. I, mean, that, is, that, I, don't, I don't, that sounded like I'm real persuasive. I could like guilt you into giving money. And you would give money for a while, but then you would kind of back off of it because guilt never lasts. And also you would resent me and you would resent having to give up the money. These people have given up of their own free will because they've learned that the key to giving is the love that's at the heart of the gospel. Look down at verse 8. I say this not as a command, Paul says, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So he's given them the Macedonians as an example. And he's saying, I'm not telling you, I'm not saying I'm coming there and I'm going to take money from all of you. So I'm just telling you that this is what they did. And I know that you're going to prove your love by doing so likewise. But Paul knows this, that giving comes down to love. Key principle here, you will give money to what you love, right? You, if you love to travel, you will spend money on travel. Angel and I, in the course of our lives as, as a, a husband and wife, have shifted our philosophy of eating out from quantity to quality. When we first got married, like, I don't want to like, uh, this will be offensive to those of you who love this sort of place. Like when we first got married, like going to Chili's would be like, oh, that's really, really good, you know. And then over the course of time, we've come to realize that the food at Chili's is just ordinary and bland. And so what we do, instead of going to Chili's uh, twice a month, once every two months, we'll go to a restaurant where they're actually making really, really delicious, good food. That's a choice we've made. Why? Because we love food and we spend money on that. Some of you have, over the course of your life, dumped thousands and tens of thousands of dollars into youth sports. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's bad. What does that do? What does that mean? That means that you actually love youth sports, right? Some of you have bought a boat. Some of you have bought a shoe. Some of you have whatever. You bought a car. Uh, you bought a magazine that you wanted. You put your money into the things that you love. This just makes sense, right? Do you remember when you were dating and you were dirt poor? And I remember when I bought Angela her, her engagement ring. I was actually teaching at a small Christian school. And if I told you what I was making, you would call the authorities and have that school uh, investigated for paying their teachers below minimum wage. I had no money. But to buy this ring for Angela was maybe the most enjoyable thing I've ever bought her. 
I had, I had no business buying that, but I loved buying it. Part of it was that because I was poor. It was a sign of my love. If I was a billionaire and I gave her the same ring, it wouldn't mean very much, right? This is what Paul is saying is that you give out of love. What you, and so, see what I'm not saying? I'm not saying, I, I was saying earlier, but I'm not saying now. You have to give because God says. I'm saying when you grasp how much God loves you in Jesus Christ, you will irresistibly love him in return. You can't help but love the person who's given you everything that he owns and saved your soul. And when you start to experience that reciprocal love to God in Jesus Christ, you will give. And your giving will flow out of love. That's the third thing. Giving is an act of love. Fourth thing, and this is the last thing. Giving is an act of grace. And now here we've come right at the end uh, to the heart of a Christian theology of giving money. And that is this. Look at verse 9. Because you know, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was rich. He owned everything in the entire universe. And he gave it all up. Why? As just a random act of like self-sacrifice? No, he gave it up to become poor so that he could give it to you and me. This is what Paul says. He became poor so that you and I might become rich. He wants to give you the universe. He wants to give you every single last dollar in the universe. He wants to give you every single square inch of this creation. He wants you to own the whole thing. And in order to do that, he completely gave up everything that he belonged, that, that belonged to him to become a poor and it frequently over the course of his life, a homeless construction worker to make this happen. Do you have you guys? Uh, this is if you've not heard of this specific story, you've heard of stories like this. Uh, Kevin Durant is an NBA uh, superstar. His mom, Wanda Durant, a single mother, a believer in Jesus Christ, completely sacrificed her life to make sure that her two sons got educational opportunities, opportunities to play youth sports. She, I mean, she wasn't thinking my kid's going to be in the NBA. She just thought. My life now exists. I will work minimum wage jobs to make sure that these guys get education, clean water, healthy food, a decent roof over their heads, a chance to play sports with other kids. She did not know that her son was going to become a multimillionaire, but he did. Now, let's say that she does this. Let's say that she completely sacrifices her life, slaves working two jobs, sunrise to sundown, comes home and crashes just so that these boys can have this opportunity. And then her son, Kevin Durant, hits the big time and becomes a multimillionaire. And let's say that Kevin Durant says to his mom, thanks. Thanks for the solid. I appreciate it. See you later. Maybe I'll see you at Christmas. You would call him. You wouldn't just say that he was ungrateful. You would say, you're actually irrational. You don't get it. The only reason that you're even alive, let alone that you have the intelligence and the athletic ability and the skills to play NBA basketball at a high level, is because this woman worked at McDonald's every night when you were a kid. To turn your back on her and walk away by like, hey, I'll get you a Christmas gift. It's not just mean. It doesn't make sense. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. The God of the universe made himself unbelievably poor. 
to make you a multi-millionaire NBA athlete. And that's even like short-selling it, right? You have way more than that. You have way more than millions of dollars. I'm not talking about spiritual things. That's true. I'm talking about the physical things of this universe that God has promised to those who love him. The new creation will belong to you in all of its rich entirety. And to say to God, that was a decent sermon. I'm going to throw 10 bucks in the plate for a tip. It would be like if Kevin Durant turned his back on his mom. It's not grasping the gospel. It's not grasping the good, wonderful gifts of love that God has given us. Why am I saying this? Can I, can I say this is intensely personal? Let me say this real quick. Uh, because some of you are visiting, some of you don't know me very well, and some of you, and all of you, know about TV preachers. Uh, let me just say this. Again, this is really, really personal. Uh, but I'm preaching to you about your money. I should be uh, uh, open about mine, right? Uh, if somebody here, what I'm trying to say is this. I am not preaching about money because I want to get rich off of you guys. If, if some of you know how the pay system works in the LCMS, if some, if one of you gave a gift to the mar, give a, a gift tomorrow to the church of a million dollars, I would not get a one cent raise. My salary is locked in. It's based upon how many years I've been a pastor, my level of education, these sorts of things, the county that I live in. I, I'm not asking this for myself. I'm asking you to consider this because it is what the gospel leads to necessarily. Giving up your life. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this is practical. I preached to you two weeks ago about uh, mercy ministries and a diaconate. And in order to meet the needs of those around us who are hungry and hurting and oppressed, in order for the mission of this church to grow, it's going to take God to provide financially. And I would love to see you guys participate in this by giving. And that leads me to my final point. Not This is the sub-point of the fourth point. The gospel is the heart of giving because Jesus gave up everything that he owns for us so that we could be rich. And then he invites us to participate in this. This is called, in verse 9, what Jesus did for us is called the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look what Paul says back in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches. The churches in Macedonia giving was the grace of God. Look what he says down in verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to give up everything he had so that we can become rich is a grace that we're invited to participate in. Not, 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 not just as receivers, but as conduits. We, when, when we give, we become like Jesus. When we give up everything that we have, like the widow did in the story of the widow's might that we read a few minutes ago, we become especially like Jesus. We get to participate in the gospel, not just as people who get the good gifts of the gospel, but as people who pass on the good gifts of the gospel. We begin to experience the grace of God, not just as, as uh, 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 spectators, but as people who get to experience and participate in union with Christ. We become not just takers, but like Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians, we learn that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We become conduits of the grace of God when we give. Amen.